We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. Verily, verily, I say unto you. It's the kind of quaint authorised version language, isn't it? The kind of thing that stands out is there's only one person in the world who's ever had been around saying, verily, verily, I say unto you. It kind of gives that strange otherworldly feeling that Christianity unfortunately provides people from time to time. And indeed, modern translations have had difficulty coping with verily, verily. Truly, truly, I say unto you, turned to the RSV, the New International Version is ironed it out altogether. I tell you the truth. But I tell you the truth misses the point that Jesus actually did speak in verily, verily kind of language. The way he said it was a bit strange. In, in the way, it was one of the characters, no one else went around saying what he said. And in John's Gospel, he doesn't just say, I tell you the truth. He says, true, true, I'm telling you the truth. It actually is a little strange in that manner of characteristic of speech. In fact, it's one of those little pieces of, of background history that mark Jesus out and mark our records of Jesus out, that put us in touch with what the Jesus who spoke was like in terms of his manner of speech. There are just some things about his manner of speech, his choice of words, which are distinctively Jesus, and that's one of them. Christianity is built on preaching on teaching, on the word coming to man, on the word of God coming to man. And it's very important that we get back to what was said. We have written account for us, but it's the written account of what was said by Jesus, what is remembered by Jesus, what is recalled by Jesus. And the New Testament keeps on going back to the teaching that we have received. The basis is not that we have come to new thinking, but the teaching that has already come to us. Paul and the other writers are not writers who are concerned about new thought, new teaching, new understanding that they have developed, but rather the Old Testament Word of God and the teaching of the Gospel as it was received. Let me show you a couple of passages. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. If you're a quick Bible flipper, it's worth looking up. If you're, if you're not always quick at hitting a verse 1 hit, then just listen, because I'm going to give you four of them, and by the fourth flip, you'll have been lost totally. Romans 6, if you've got a Bible and the person beside you hasn't, then just show them, won't they? Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching which was entrusted to you or to which you were entrusted. They're obedient to not just teaching, but the very form of teaching that has already been entrusted to them. Or come across a few pages to Romans 16, 17. Romans 16, 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learnt. It's not contrary to where you're going, etc. It's contrary to the teaching 
that you have already learnt. The gospel was something that was taught to you, that is something that you have learnt. Or come across to Titus, a little bit closer to where we're going to be today, Titus chapter 1, when he talks about the kinds of elders to appoint in the church, and they've got to have certain characteristics in verses 5 through to 9 and so on. But in verse 9 he says, He, that is the elder, Titus 1, 9, He, the elder, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. See, he mustn't be a clever man who can think out new thoughts. He must be a faithful man who can stick to the message that has already been taught because the message that has already been taught is a trustworthy message, is a reliable message, is a faithful message, is one that you don't want to vary, you don't want to change, but you want to faithfully keep and report. I'll come to the second last book of the Bible, Jude, in verse 3. Don't ask which chapter. With Jude, Jude and verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. See, the faith of Jesus Christ was given to, the, to God's people, but it was given once for all time. That's when it was given. It was not given in part, it was given in fact in full with the coming of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and the message that he received was the message for all time. It's not a new message for a new age. We don't have a 13th century Christianity and a 15th century Christianity and now a 20th century Christianity. The Christianity of the 20th century must be the Christianity of the 1st century if it is to be genuine Christianity. If Jesus and the apostles don't have it right, there's no chance we've got it getting it right, is there? It's the faith that was delivered then, that was taught then. That is the faith, that is the teaching that we must stick to. Now, if it's to stick to it, then we've got to be reliable. We've got to be not novelty seekers, but faithful people, reliable people. But if we're going to rely and stick to that, then it itself must be reliable. It itself must be trustworthy. It itself must be dependable. In the letters to Timothy and Titus, two letters to Timothy, one to Titus, five times, Paul, rather than writing his own writings, quotes a saying. And he says, here's a trustworthy saying, presumably one circulating in the Christian world, presumably one that Paul and Timothy know already. They've already shared with it. This saying about Jesus Christ, this is one of the trustworthy sayings that we can rely upon. And in a sense, here we get a little snippet of pre-New Testament Christianity. You get lots of snippets in the New Testament, but here's something that's before Paul. He is quoting a saying that is already circulating. See, because Paul himself is not a novelty man. He's not one who has thought up a new form of religion. Paul is only building that foundation which is Jesus Christ. Paul is only teaching the teachings of Christ. And here is a saying that is trustworthy, he says. An example of the trustworthy word, something you can rely upon, something you can base your life on, something that you can accept. These words, because they are fully worthy of acceptance. He actually does a double underlining. I don't know if you're an underliner of things, but I am. And, I, and sometimes I actually double underline things. I'm always amused the way that Elizabeth 
and, and other people who have worked before us typing out my outlines of work because I always double outline, double underline the headings and then underline other headings but I notice they only ever come down as one heading underlining here, you see. But when you really want to say, this is the important one, you underline it. But when you've underlined half a dozen things already, what do you do then? Well, you double underline and triple underline and these days do those yellow and pink and green things and all the ways you... This, so this is what he's saying. See, this is a faithful saying and it's worthy of acceptance. Well, if it is a faithful saying, of course it's worthy of acceptance. It's a, it's a Rex Mossop, isn't it, to actually say that? But... But why does Rex do it? Well, there may be lots of reasons why Rex does it, but the idea really is this really, really, really is important. This is verily, verily, I say unto you. It's not just verily, it's verily, verily, I say unto you. This is true truth that you really have to grasp hold of, that you really must rely upon. This is the word that is to be accepted and to be received and to be built upon and to be trusted and to base your life upon. This is it. And so he's got through these five statements, really important things to be saying that he has underlined that are sayings from elsewhere that he has brought into his argument. Now, what about this one? This particular one we have in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The others you'll see I've listed on the outline that run through the, the books, 1 Timothy 1, 15, 3, 1, 4, 9, 2 Timothy 2, 11 and Titus 3, 8. But what about this one? What is the setting of this saying? Well, Paul is writing to Timothy to encourage him to stay in Ephesus. You'll see back in verse 3 of this chapter, to stay in Ephesus and to put things straight in the church, especially to appoint the right kind of leadership and eldership within the church because there are people who have risen up who are distorting the gospel, who are changing it and perverting it and making it different to what it is. And, and Timothy is to correct that false teaching by putting teachers of the word of God in their place, people who will not distort the gospel because we have been entrusted with the gospel. That's the character of the Christian ministry. It's to be entrusted with the gospel. And therefore, we've got to be very careful whom we select to teach the word of God, that they will teach it faithfully, that they are those kinds of people who will teach it faithfully, because it's a great trust. He says, I thank God, really, that God not only called me to believe in the gospel, I mean, that's a great privilege that is mine, says Paul, but he also has given me the gospel to preach to others how kind God is. He not only calls us to be his children, but he calls us to be his representatives as well. Boy, given our track record, given how sinful we are, it's an enormous privilege that we're called to be his children, but that we will be appointed as his representatives in the world, that is a fantastic privilege, a fantastic trust that has been entrusted to us. You're the ambassador of the of, of Australia and you stand as an ambassador of Australia, then you've been trust, entrusted with something, haven't you? You've been entrusted to represent this commonwealth to whatever country you're going. And it's very important that you represent it faithfully. You don't hive off and make up your own policy decisions. You say, well, I don't give a fig what Bob Hawke thinks. This is what I tell you Australians stand for. No, no, you're actually there to represent the government, which represents the people, and that's the theory anyway, that, that you're there to represent their viewpoints so that our nation is represented. That's a great trust, isn't it, to be in that position? Well, in the Gospels, says Paul, we've been entrusted with God's as God's representatives to declare to the world his message, not our message, not our thinking, but his message to the world. It's a great trust that has been given to me, says Paul, 
especially it's given to me because I actually used to be the enemy of God. That I should now be the representative of God is extraordinary. And I thank my God that he has given me strength, that he considers me faithful, appointing me to this service, even though I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Here is the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. I have a problem with this translation. It may not be your problem. It's, it's completely accurate. Just I have a problem. When you describe a person as the worst of sinners, what kind of sinner do you think he is? It always sounds to me that someone who's the worst of sinners is someone who's not very good at sinning. He hasn't quite learnt the, the art yet properly, you know? Whereas the best of sinners is somebody who really can do it, you know, with pizzazz. Well, <clears throat> that's the problem. And so the old translation is actually, I think, a little bit better at that point because it removes that ambiguity. He says, of whom I am the chief. There's no doubt what the chief sinner is. The chief sinner is the best sinner, the one who really knows how to sin well. And that's who Paul is thinking of himself. He says, now, you see, if the chief sinner can be converted, if the chief sinner can be saved, if the person who is the deepest down in, the, in, in degradation can be lifted up to be one of God's people, well, then anybody else can be, can't they? And so God has chosen me in particular to be saved and to be the preacher of this message so that people will have me as an example because the message is all about being rescued. And if you can rescue me, you can rescue anybody. If God was able to save me who was his persecutor, he can save you. That's the argument that is being used. And so the key saying that he is bringing out, of which he is an example, a walking sermon illustration, is verse 15. The trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. Very handy to be a walking sermon illustration if you're a preacher, isn't it? But that's what he is, the example of salvation. Here then is this trustworthy saying. What is it about? In the outline you'll see I'll divide up what it's about under three things, who, what, why, and in all of them, be seeing the alternatives that people talk about in terms of Christianity, because lots of people just can't get Christianity right, it seems, when it's so simple, and this verse is so crystal clear. It's a lovely one as a summary. Well, who is it about first? It's about Christ Jesus. It's funny, you see, they're words that are so old and so taken for granted that we, we lose their meaning. I was out watching a game of football yesterday, watching, watching a, a game of rugby, and, and I heard him referred to often all through the game. But it really had anything to do with him, just a series of words that could be used by a team that was being ground into the dust. Christ Jesus. See, Christ is not a name. Christ is a job description. It's a title. It's a, well, it, it's like doctor. Right? So Christ Jesus is like Dr. Jesus or, or Judge Smith. Right? Now, after a while, the very title becomes a name, doesn't it? So you actually, sometimes people, they stop talking to, 
to Smith, they talk to Judge. See, they, they stop calling you Jones, they call you Doctor. What do you think about this Doctor? What do you think about that Doctor? And so the very title moves into being a kind of name. Well, likewise, the word Christ. The word Christ means ruler, king, messiah. Right? It's the messiah of the Old Testament. It's the one who is coming to rule the world. It's not just an everyday word. It is the ruler, the conquering ruler of the universe that Christ, that God has bringing in the world to establish his empire forever. So it's a big thing when you talk about Christ, anybody. They don't have many Christs in this world. Indeed, if this is the true Christ, he is the only Christ. There's only one world ruler. Christ, Jesus. But it makes the clear identification as to who this Christ is that Paul believed who he thinks is the Messiah, the King, the ruler, that is Jesus, the man whom he despised and rejected, the man whose followers he tried to kill. Indeed, he did kill some of them. He was a murderer, was Paul, a persecutor of the church and a persecutor of this Jesus as the Messiah. But what is extraordinary here is that we just race past it, the phrase Christ Jesus. When he's writing this, Jesus has been dead for some years. And yet, Paul thinks that this Jesus, who was crucified publicly, this Jesus is still the Christ, is still the Messiah, is still the world ruler. You see, it's the risen Jesus that Paul perceives is the Messiah. It's one of those unconscious testimonies to the fact that they believe that Jesus rose from the dead because you can't call him the world ruler when he's dead. When he didn't seem to set up any empire, I mean, he died alone, his disciples having fled him. That's hardly the world ruler unless you believe in the resurrection. That is, it's not Jesus your friend, but Jesus the king. It's not Jesus the son of Joseph, or if you want to put him down, the son of Mary, but Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, not just the messianic pretender, but Jesus who really is the Messiah. That is, Jesus who has risen from the dead and rules the world. That's the one that we're talking about. The man, Jesus the Christ. But what's it saying he did? Came into the world. He came into the world. It's a strange phrase. You see, those of us who have grown up saying the prayer book know that at communion service this verse is said. Time after time. It's a true saying, worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you just rolls off your tongue and you think, oh yeah, I know that one, I know. What does it mean to came into the world? It's a very funny way of talking about a bloke being born. Now, he was born, but is that what you mean? It's a very funny way of saying he rose to power, that he came into the world. I mean, would you want to say that Bob Hawke came into the world to be Prime Minister of Australia? Well, there are some people who vote so far out in the left wing or the middle wing or so sycophantic in the Labor Party that they might want to view Bob Hawke in those light. Some people suggest that Bob Hawke views himself in those lights. But then again, they think he walks on water as well. It's a bit strange to say he came into the world to be the Prime Minister of Australia. He was born, and after his birth, he rose up to the position of he struggled, he was ambitious, he, he, he went through the trade union movement to arrive at. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you'd say it, but you'd hardly say he came into the world. John, in John's Gospel, keeps on recording Jesus talking in exactly those terms. 
Yeah, I think we can skip through John's Gospel and do this one, because it's all in the one book. Come back with me to John's Gospel. Let me show you a few of these. John's Gospel. And it starts chapter 1. There's about five or six of these. John 1, 9 is the first one. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. See, there was light, and in him was the the light of men. He was the true light of God. He was coming into the world. The same idea of the light coming into the world is in chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict, 3.19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. See the impression that there is light, that light existed beforehand and light has now come into the world even though people reject it. Or come across to chapter 11 where Martha is speaking to Jesus about the Christ and about himself as being the Christ. And that marvellous testimony she gives, Martha gives to, to uh, Jesus in verse 27 of, of John 11. eleven twenty-seven. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. That's who I believe you are, the Christ who was to come into the world. Or across in John chapter 12, verse 46, 12, 46. I have come, says Jesus, into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. You see, there is the light of God that has come into the world, and the world is a place of darkness that does not receive the light, but it needs the light, does not accept the light. Jesus is that one who has come into the world as the light of the world. Or again, just to finish off John's Gospel, to see all the coming into, 1628, 1628. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father, says Jesus, 1628. And the last one, John 18.37, when he's before Pontius Pilate, John 18.37, you are the king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am the king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. You can't use just the words come into the world to prove the pre-existence of Jesus, but given what the New Testament says about Jesus then that is clearly what is being meant. That he who was with the Father before this world ever existed, he has actually come into the world. And the world is a place of darkness, a world is a place of hostility to God, a world is a place that God comes to save and to rescue. It's foreign to him, it's hostile to him. And so why does he come into this world? And the answer is in 1 Timothy 1.15, to save sinners. Oh, there are many answers that people can give. Some will say he comes to testify to the truth. That's true. Or he comes to fulfill prophecy. That's true. Or he comes to do his father's will. That's true. Some people say things, though, that are not true, that he just comes in order to show us how to live. It is true that he does show us how to live, but that's not why he came into the world. The Old Testament told us how to live. Or he came to teach God's word. Well, he does teach us God's word, but that's not what he came to do. He came to lead Israel's armies, not even true at all. That's completely false why he came. Jesus came for, to save sinners. In a phrase, the fundamental summary of the gospel 
is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Let me take you back to the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3.16. John 3.16. And look at the verse after it as well. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, God's gift of his Son was for the salvation of people. It wasn't for the condemnation of mankind, but for the salvation of mankind that Christ Jesus came into the world. It's God's salvage operation. That's why Jesus came. He could have come to conquer, he could have come to judge, and in some senses he did, but he actually came to save. And to whom did he come to save? But his opponents, his enemies, the sinners. You see, the expectation of the Jew was that the Messiah would come for the righteous, namely us, to destroy the wicked, namely them. But Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is why he was opposed by the righteous Jew, because Jesus came into the world to save them as sinners. You see, himself, you remember Jesus said, you don't send for the doctor when you're well, but when you're sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Or that passage that Christy read to us from uh, Luke 19 about Zacchaeus, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to search for the lost. He doesn't come to seek for the found. You don't need to seek for the found any more than you need to send a doctor to someone who's healthy. The Messiah comes to seek to save the lost, the sinners. They are the ones for whom he comes. And that is why he came in order to die. The centre of Christianity is not Christmas. Oh, the centre of paganism in our Christianised community is Christmas. That's the great feast. That's the enjoyable one. But no, no, the centre of Christianity is Easter, if you're going to put it in religious observances. It's the death of Jesus, for he came into the world to be executed. He was born in order to die, for he came to die for the sins of the world. He came so that in his death, we who are sinners might be saved. Now, the implications, therefore, of this little verse, 1 Timothy 1.15, are very great. Firstly, it speaks of the very nature of Christianity. You see, Christianity is not a club of self-righteous hypocrites. There are many hypocrites who are Christians and many Christians who are hypocrites, but they're not self-righteous. That's not the character because it's got nothing to do with being self-righteous. In fact, Christians by and large are less hypocritical than non-Christians because Christians all know that they're sinners, whereas most non-Christians tend to think they're not. So when you see Christians doing wrong things, they're just living up to their profession of being sinful. Christianity is not a society of moralizing wowsers. It's not about morality, it's about being rescued. It's not a ritualistic religion practicing the preservation of cultural anachronisms like old buildings. No, that's the Heritage Commission and so on. What's Christianity? Preserved our toilets, I mean. There's anachronism. What is Christianity about? It's about a God's salvage operation. 
It's about rescuing the lost. It's about rescuing the enemies of God. It's about Christ, who he is, what he came to do. And so this verse gives great hope for those of us who are lost, for those of us who have sinned, for those of us who have failed, for those of us who have turned away from God, for those of us who have rebelled against God, for those of us who have just ignored God. Christianity is for us. You can't oppose God any more than trying to kill all his representatives. That's what Paul tried to do. And Christianity was for him. He was saved by Jesus' death on his behalf. What have you done? What lies, what theft, what adultery, what greed, what drunkenness, what wife bashing, what, what have you done? How has your rebellion against God been expressed in the way in which you've lived? doesn't matter how far you have gone down that track. doesn't matter how far you may ever go down that track. Your case is not hopeless for God because God sent his son into the world to save just you. Didn't go and send his son into the world to save good people, but rotters. That's why I'm a Christian. If I had to be saving good people, there'd be no chance for me. There'd be no chance for you either. It's marvellous news, you see, because it's real chance for us knowing what we've done. It doesn't matter how far you go, Christ came for you and calls you. If you don't know Jesus as your saviour, then do talk to me about it over morning tea. But look at the third implication. It's a rebuke to the proud. For the enemies of Jesus were the moral upright pillars of society. Why? Well, because Jesus came for sinners. And to be in Christ's kingdom requires you to see yourself as a sinner, which is deeply offensive to the proud, deeply offensive to the moral, to the upright, to the self-made man. To actually see myself as a beggar desperately needing help is deeply and profoundly offensive to somebody who thinks they're somebody. And that's why his enemies were not the prostitutes, were not the the tax collectors, were not the publicans, were not the down and outs, were not the immoral and corrupt. His enemies were the upright, moral, middle class people. They were his enemies because he didn't come for the righteous but for the lost. This is a trustworthy saying. It's one you can base your life upon. It's fully true to the gospel of Jesus. It is a marvellous summary of that gospel that Christ, the Messiah, the King, the ruler of the universe is Jesus and he has come into the world that was set in opposition to God. He has come into the world in order to rescue people like you and like me, people who are sinners of whom Paul himself perceives himself the chief. But then again, I don't think he met me. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of your great Son. We thank you for his faithfulness to the task of salvation. We thank you that he came into the world, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That he didn't come into the world to condemn us, 
though we truly deserved condemnation, but came into the world to save us, and even that by the death of, on the cross. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.